Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Garrett Price on Woodstock 99. First, I wanted to encourage you to check out booksonpod.com. You can sort through past shows by episode number, book title, author's last name, or sort by category. For instance, select the biographies and memoirs or music category for episode number 62 with Greg Graffin on Do What You Want, the story of Bad Religion. Hey, this is Greg Graffin from Bad Religion. I'd like you to listen to Books on Pod with Trey. We just had a great talk about Bad Religion's new book that's out there, Do What You Want, the story of Bad Religion. Hello, readers. We're taking another break from books today for the third installment of our Docs on Pod series, where we speak with filmmakers about their documentaries. My guest today is Garrett Price. He is the director of the excellent new HBO Max film, Woodstock 99, Peace, Love, and Rage. Garrett, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? Doing good, Trey. Thanks for having me, man. It's great to have you on. It's a pleasure to have you on. And for people who are unaware, you and I actually went to UT in the late 90s and early 2000s together. I don't think I fully realized back then that you would be a filmmaker all these years later. Did you have aspirations to make films, make documentaries back in the late 90s and early 2000s? Not necessarily documentaries. You know, I, I studied film at the University of Texas. And then after we graduated, I got accepted to grad school at the American Film Institute out here in L.A. Um, in the editing track, basically. And I've been a working film and TV editor for the past 15 years. And it wasn't really until recently I started kind of dipping my toes in the directing side of things. I, I, I did a passion project a couple of years back, a documentary on this, the late actor Anton Yelchin that was it was fairly well received and got to Sundance and it kind of opened the door for me to kind of try this again with this new film. So what got you into Woodstock 99? Try, I don't know if you remember us back in the summer of 1999, but uh, I was living at Villa Vallarta apartment complex right off campus. I believe you lived there too for a little bit. Sadly, um, no longer around. Rest in peace for that Miami, Florida looking apartment complex. It, is it gone, really? Oh, man. Yeah, they've put a high-rise up there, which is pretty much the case everywhere else in West Campus now, too. I mean, you know, they paved the parking lot, you know? <laughs> Basically, <laughs> I should say. Um, but uh, I, I was glued to my television that weekend in July of 1999 with the pay-per-view feed uh, and watching all everything unfold on MTV also. You know, this was music I was into, you know? This was this basically... Uh, exemplified the zeitgeist of the time, of our time, when I was coming of age. And uh, I don't think I necessarily really understood the magnitude of what was going on. There was actually more major FOMO. I wish I was there when I was watching it on TV. And it wasn't until years later when I really kind of started to dig in and kind of go down a, a YouTube rabbit hole, so to speak, and mm-hmm. watching performances and starting to read some exposés about the issues, not only behind the festival, but also the culture of the time. Um, I was surprised the film hadn't been made yet on the story. There was a version of Woodstock that happened in 1994 as well, and that went off without a hitch. It was a big enough success that they wanted to do it again five years later, and things started out okay. I'm with you. I was a big fan of popular rock music at that time, so the lineup really appealed, and it seemed like they found a pretty decent place to hold this as well in Rome, New York. So what was the first sign that things might not be as splendid as they were five years previous? Well, I think first, you know, 
decent place in Rome, New York, but it was also took place on a decommissioned military base, which, you know, it's all concrete, all runways. Out of control of the promoters was it was one of the hottest weekends in upstate New York in years. So you had a bunch of kids coming in, not quite prepared for the heat. There wasn't really any shade anywhere. You know, right off the bat, you know, people were suffering from heat exhaustion. And also, you know, the the prices were very expensive. They were charging $4 for a bottle of water, $12 for pizzas. You know, this is a time when corporate America started kind of rear its head a bit. Uh, you know, <laughs> in culture, they, you know, not that it always always hasn't, but they 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 saw an opportunity to hopefully make a mo- make money this time because if anything has plagued Woodstocks of the past is they've lost money on ticket sales. The original Woodstock basically ended up becoming a free concert because of gate crashing. Ninety four there was gate crashing. They ended up losing money actually, even though it, it was a success because if there wasn't a lot of violence, uh, you know. Um, but they ended up losing money, and they were gonna, they were not going to lose money in ninety nine. One reason having it on a military base, it's enclosed. You know, if there's any way to keep people in, it's a military base. <laughs> it's just the irony of a Woodstock on a military base isn't, isn't lost on people, I think. Very ironic indeed. And not only did you get to speak with a variety of people who took part in this festival, from fans to musicians to the promoters themselves, you also got a lot of B-roll footage, a lot of footage from on the ground. Was that the first step in making this film for you, is going through and figuring out what you wanted to use from the various moments that existed on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday? Absolutely. I, I knew I wanted the, I wanted an audience to feel like they were boots on the ground in this festival. So I had incredible archivists and researchers that basically found people all over the country that attended that had brought, you know, mini DV cameras or handy cams in and maybe have posted a clip over the years on YouTube. And they basically Twitter stalked and YouTube stalked <laughs> and got in touch with people who had these, you know, mini DV tapes at their parents' house for years locked in a closet or attic. And they sent it to us. And the stuff was just gold. You know, it, it, it really gave you a sense of the time. You know, there's something really authentic you know, capturing people on camera, on these cameras, even people were acting up in front of a camera. It was still real. It's not kind of like the the selfie world we live in today, you know, where it's very disposable. You can redo things over and over again. So it really captures a moment, you know, using this footage. And I knew mixing that with the pay-per-view and the, the performance footage also with these kind of more cinematic interviews would really kind of give a sense of, of, of the time. And that was important to me. And the people that you spoke with included Black Thought from The Roots, Dave Holmes, former DJ, of course, Carson Daly as well, who was big time, especially back then, Moby, Jonathan Davis from Korn, Dexter Holland from The Offspring. What a bright dude that is. I looked up his background and what he's been up to since then. He's a freaking molecular biologist now, I believe. Jewel, Scott Stapp, and Dave Mustaine. Uh, What insight did Moby provide for you? I think... What, what I loved about all the musicians I talked to was how like kind of self-reflective they've become with this event over the years. And they thought about it and they were really unguarded and telling their kind of, you know, their point of views of this festival, you know, it, it you know, doing these interviews, it, I've talked to a lot of celebrities in the projects I've worked on. Sometimes you get very guarded, you know, cookie cutter responses, but everyone I talked to about this were really open and really willing to go there and kind of, 
analyze what happened in, in terms of the festival itself and kind of the cultural context. These are the things I was looking to talk about with this film. And, and Moby was incredible. I mean, he, he, he's not afraid to say what he thinks. And I think that really lends itself to uh, giving a certain point of view that needs to be talked about. And he fully realized the night of his, I think it was a DJ set for a rave tent, uh, just how badly things are going. And he told his group, look, when we're done here, we're packing up our stuff and leaving because this is only going to get worse, too. Right, yeah. And he meant it. And he vividly remembers it, too, talking with them. You also spoke with Woodstock co-founder Michael Lang, who has remained a part of this event over the years, including the attempts to revive it a couple years ago. A journalist described him as a sort of Willy Wonka figure to you. When you spoke with him, did you catch that vibe as well? Yeah, you know, I think Michael's a really interesting person. I mean, this he's been with this brand since the inception, and it's been his life. Um, and I, I understand it's something he's wanted to keep alive and not let go of. Um, but, you know, again, I think this is one of the themes of this film is, you know, these kind of dynamics and power dynamics, whether it's generational between baby boomers and this generation of the Woodstock 99 and the new generation now, or if it's gender based with some of the, you know, some of the issues that occurred between for, for women at the festival or racially based, you'll see in the film too, and class based. So, you know, I think something I bring up in the film is, you know, the original Woodstock for as, as, you know, idyllic and this mythology that's built around it, you know, it wasn't this perfect bucolic, you know, thing that happened in the late sixties. There were some really, is- some big issues that happened underneath. Uh, and yet it kind of went off without, you know, they made it through it basically, you know, with a lot of luck. And I think, Michael has kind of fallen victim to the, its own mythology he's created that you can get through things. It, it'll just work itself out maybe in the end. Um, and I, I think in 94, he was able to get through it. And I think in 99, it, it shows you that you really need to, you know, take concessions with your attendees and, you know, take care of people. I spoke to a, a well-known concert promoter that didn't make it in the film, but he, he described it as, you know, if you start treating people like pigs, they're going to act like pigs. And I think This is kind of a classic example of that. I have to admit that I'm one of those people that romanticized the 1969 concert, and I have a different opinion on that, thanks to this wonderful (laughs) film. So when did you decide to explore, because I think this may have been my favorite moment in the film, when did you decide to explore the figurative death of grunge from the literal death of Kurt Cobain that caused this collective psychological shift from one that was more sensitive to racial, sexual, and gender issues to this machismo, homophobic, misogynistic attitude that really boiled to a head at Woodstock 99. Yeah, I was just fascinated by this idea of like how we started in the 90s with like the idealism of like bands like Nirvana and Pearl Jam and A Tribe Called Quest. And yet we end it with like the nihilism, I guess, of, you know, of, of corn and Limp Biscuits and this is emerging genre of new metal. And it, this isn't, you know, I never, I don't think this film blames new metal. It's not something I ever want to do, but I was interested in seeing why, how this music came about and why it connected with so many people at that time. And that was really interesting, interesting to me. And again, as interested as I, as interested as I was in telling the story of Woodstock 99 and everything unfolded, I was just as excited to talk about 
this kind of socio-political and cultural context that surrounded this festival plopped in the middle at a time of I came of age in. And that's what, you know, I think even the original Woodstock was kind of a mirror to the culture of the time, just as this is a mirror to the culture of our time, Trey, <laughs> for better or for worse, I think. Well put. Things did evolve throughout the course of the three days to the point where the National Guard ends up getting called in on Sunday night after these massive bonfires are set. Somebody stupidly decided it would be a good idea to pass out actual candles and inevitably considering the rest of the weekend that was going to turn poor. But there were security guards who were supposed to be helping to keep the peace at Woodstock 99. Just how well prepared were they to do their jobs that weekend? You know, not really. You know, in the film, I interview one who talks about his training session. It was basically in a classroom for a couple hours. They gave you the answers to the test and it was all of a sudden a security guard at Woodstock. You know, <laughs> it's, you know, for a concert that, that size of, you know, 200, 300,000 people, you have to have a lot of guards. So I know they struggled with hiring the amount they could get, you know, because of state laws. But, you know, so I... They didn't really do the proper background checks or, the pro, you know, there's no experience for a lot of these guards. So a lot of them just used their past. They're, they were handed these T-shirts. And as soon as they entered the festival, they flipped their T-shirts, hit their passes and enjoyed, you know, three days of rock and roll and chaos. Um, and that's, you know, lends to the problems of this. But, you know, if anything, you know, I think the good things came out of Woodstock 99. And that's, you know, modern day festivals learned a lot and how to put on a proper festival. Mm. And it's almost like, you need something like a Woodstock 99 to kind of shift the paradigm a little bit <laughs> into something that, you know, that, that works now, at least for the time being. I think one of the biggest lessons for future festivals was not letting things get as muddy as they did in Rome, New York. If there's anything that most of us probably remember more than all else, it's just how muddy it was throughout the course of that weekend. Why did things get so muddy? Because it didn't rain at all that weekend. Mud and Woodstocks have this weird relationship. I mean, the first one, there's famous images of people covered in mud at, at Yaxer's farm. 94, there's those famous performances of Nine Inch Nails and Green Day on stage, mud fights everywhere. Uh, you know, this is a tarmac where this took place there and there was no rain, it was hot. Yet people were breaking open pipes for some of the water stations, the few water stations that were there. Mm. These water stations were right next to the porta potties and the porta potties started to overflow and there wasn't much maintenance going on. Everything mixed together, but damn it, these kids were gonna get in the mud. <laughs> if that's what you even call it, you know? Well, and a big part of this film, obviously, as it was with the festivals, all the great music that was going on throughout the course of the festival, just how difficult was it making decisions on what to play where? Yeah, you know, I made a really calculated decision for whatever, you know, music, I, like performance footage I wanted to cut to and show, that song really had to lend itself in kind of these culture dives and almost create a subtext, almost a double meaning Besides watching a great song performance, it, it lent an opportunity to kind of talk about something else. And, you know, whether it's the ironies with using, you know, as, as straightforward as Alana Smurset's ironic or with Fred Durst and Limp Bizkit's break stuff, which I think talks a lot about the culture of the time, you know, so that it was a very calculated decision on what songs to use. And it helps keep, and at its heart, this is a rock documentary. You know, it's, it's, it's a music doc. 
So it, it was essential that we were able to license these songs and play them out as much as we did. When did the brilliant idea come to you to finish the film with the offsprings, the kids aren't all right? I always knew from day one that I wanted to start the film with the lit song, My Own Worst Enemy. Mm-hmm. I, I wanted the movie to feel like a road trip movie of the late 90s. You could almost <laughs> see Jason Diggs in, his, in the car driving to Woodstock 99. This optimism. You know, these kids are going upstate for a week and they're, you know, drugs, sex, and rock and roll. And it takes, as I, as I say in the film, it takes kind of a, turns more into a horror film. And that's kind of the beginning of a horror film premise anyways, right? Kids going to the woods to party and tragedy occurs over, over the weekend. And I always knew from the end, the Offspring song just felt right, you know, just instinctually right to kind of, you know, as a credit sequence to this movie. It was so perfect. And I got to tell you, my wife started watching it with me last night and literally five minutes in, she's like, all right, I got to go to bed because I'm waking up early tomorrow to go work out. But she was hooked immediately, and as soon as that final song, that Offspring song played, she was jumping for joy. She's like, that was so good. Please tell him how much I loved it. So my wife really enjoyed the film for a lot of reasons, but especially that song pick at the very end there. Oh, I'm sorry. She, so she watched the whole thing. She stayed up the whole night. She ended oh. up watching the entire thing, too. She's like, damn it, why did you suck me into this? This is too good. I just assumed Amazing. it was going to be another one of your boring documentaries. I'm like, no, Garrett's pretty good at stuff, and uh, this is a, a fun topic, too. And it's right in both of our wheelhouses, music-wise. Now, one band that I wasn't a big fan of back then, and uh, a lot of people were, is Limp Biscuit. And I got to say, the scene during their performance of Break Stuff was shocking. It was just crazy to see what was happening with the crowd and how Fred Durst was really instigating things to become much, much worse. Just how complicit were they and how bad things ultimately got throughout the rest of that weekend? It's a difficult topic because I, I, I don't want to finger point at Limp Bizkit. I don't necessarily think it's their fault things got to where it was. There's lots of factors going in. And, and I've talked to a lot of musicians in this about the responsibility, I guess, on stage and performance when you start to see things kind of go a, a, a certain way, you know, but also at the same time, Limp Biscuit is hired to put on a Limp Biscuit show. I don't know if they're doing anything different than what they do in a club setting, you know, or, you know, in a different setting. And there's also this added pressure, I think, of a Woodstock set, you know, there's some pretty generational performances and famous performances that come out of Woodstock. So I think there's that factor also. Um, and, you know, I, I wish Fred would, I, I, I offered him a platform to give his point of view because I, I allow other people to talk about it. Like Jonathan Davis talks about like blaming artists. And, you know, this is, this is the time when musicians were a scapegoat for a lot of things. This is Columbine, you know, this is where, you know, finger pointing was happening at musicians and entertainment for things people were doing, which I don't think is very fair either. You know, there's a lot more forces at play. Um, so, and, and, but you know, then again, the promoters put a lot of blame on Limp Biscuit. you know? So I really just want to put lots of different points of views together and lay out the facts and let audiences kind of come up with their own conclusions. I think, you know, it, 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 it I, I didn't want this film to be didactic, I guess, you know, I just want to put a bunch of things, you know, Lay it all out there for everybody with the context um, and people can draw their own lines. And some people are drawing lines from, you know, the culture of the late 1990s to where we are now. You know, there's you know some imagery is very uncanny uh, of some things that have happened, you know, come across your news, you know, news over the past year. Yeah. And, you know, I did most of these interviews in 2020. So 
you know, I think a lot of people tried to like, you know, connect Woodstock 99 attendees to insurrectionists. And I, I don't think that's true, but I do think there's something very familiar in looking at some of this footage, you know, to, you know, of that time mm. to things we see in the news now. And, and truthfully, just this time is so, I think, in conversation now with all the talk about Britney Spears and what happened to her during that time and how she was treated to movies of the time, to how kids are dressing now. They're dressing like how we used to dress, Trey, which yeah. is nuts, right? <laughs> Weird. They sure are. And I didn't want to make any assumptions, so I was going to ask you if Fred Durst declined to be interviewed for this film. It sounds like that was the case. If you could ask Fred Durst any one question, what would it be? I just want his side of the story. I spoke to Fred off the record before, and he we spoke a couple times, and he respectfully declined to be a part. You know, I think it's something he's tried to kind of just step away from. But, you know, I was like, you know, I, I think this would hope, it was hopefully the, the definitive film on this event. And I, I'd love you to be a part of it. But, you know, again, I think how it this has affected him. I, I think it's affected him emotionally, you know, getting blamed for a lot of the, this stuff. Um, so and, and I don't think it's there's a lot of things that happen and a lot of guilty parties, you know, and I think they have unfairly been blamed for a lot of it, which I don't think is right. But I do think it's just one of the many things that happened that weekend that led up to how it ended. Was there anybody else that you were especially disappointed who decided not to take part in an interview for the film? Yeah, you know, I, I always wanted to talk to the Chili Peppers, too. Um, they just, you know, they respectfully declined. Uh, but the truth, I mean, I, we reached out to everybody, honestly. But I think I got, a, I would have had to make a series, I think, and I would have gotten too many more people to be a part of it. That's true. And this is something, and this is something we talked about in the beginning, but I don't know if... Me personally, I could sit through a series of this. I think it, it's it's a one-setting story because <laughs> you feel just a little dirty, I think, coming out of it, you know? <laughs> and I don't know if I want to come back to it week after week. Yeah, pun intended there as well, I'm guessing. And the most disheartening part of this film was learning about the sexual assaults that happened throughout the course of the weekend. Did you realize going into this project that that was an element of the story that you would have to tell? And just how careful were you in making sure that you covered this the right way? Yeah, I, I knew that's a huge part of the story. Absolutely. You know, I, I think it's a part of the story we've, been, we've heard about, but not really explored and and how, how awful it really was there. Um, and as I started doing all the research and seeing all this imagery of gropings and other things going on, I mean, and it's happening right there in the wide open. And it, it's, it's, it, it's something it was, we were very cautious and a very fine line of how much we show and how much we don't show. You don't want to be exploitive, but also you had to get, you had to feel, feel what people were feeling, get tired of it. I talked to so many people that were just, you know, hammered, seeing hammered with the stuff, seeing it everywhere they walked and, and hearing these chants of, Flash, please, you know, a flashing for women. And it was just got old real quick, from what I understand. And then you put this in the context of this Girls Gone Wild era we are in at, in 1999. You know, the popular magazines are those lad mags like Maxim, FHM, where if you were an actress or a musician of the time, you had to pose on those just to be noticed, which is wild to think about. I feel like if you and I were watching television back in, in the late 90s at your apartment in Via Viarda, we probably saw the occasional Girls Gone Wild video. I don't watch enough regular television anymore to know if that still exists. I'm assuming it's not around anymore, though. Yeah, absolutely. A promo would come on watching with my parents. Yeah, go to pay-per-view, Girls Gone Wild, hate or so. It's wild to think about, yeah. right? 
So you take that, you know, you look at the entertainment of the time. You've got like movies like American Pie, where you, there's moments of basically sexual assault in that, you know, covered in the guise of comedy when they're spying on a woman in his bedroom. You've got movies that are satirical in nature, like Fight Club and Matrix, but they're being taken literal by this generation, I think, also, and kind of became calling cards for this angst. And so you take all of this and you mix it with this festival that's being marketed with the ideals of the counterculture in the late 60s, where you know you had this free love movement, and you package it like that, and you sell it with a musical lineup that's attracting this new generation that's being influenced by all these new things. And it's just creating this toxic environment that I think lent itself also to a lot of the troubles. So, you know, my original thesis was if the festival was a victim of its time, which I think is partially true, but I think there's a lot of other factors like poor planning and the Woodstock mythology itself. So it begs the question, like, if this wasn't called Woodstock, would it have turned out okay? Maybe. We had festivals. We had Ozfest. We had Lollapaloozas. We had other things. Maybe that's the trouble, you know? So I know it's a lot to unload, but like, it's, it's, you know, that's an interesting theory there. And I think there is something to that as well. Just like you just said also that there's no one thing that caused this. It's just a, almost a perfect storm of issues that came together that created this powder keg that blew up in a pretty awful way throughout the course of the weekend. Now it's sad to see that 20 years later, the promoters still cannot really hold themselves accountable for what happened because they were certainly a part of that equation. As a matter of fact, Dave Schur gave you a quote towards the end of the film. And the quote is, an overwhelming number of people had a great time. Do you agree with that after speaking with as many different people as you did? Yeah, I mean, it's a polarizing event. Listen, I, when I, I had a couple people that worked on the film with me that were at Woodstock 99. And kind of like how I felt watching it live, they kind of remember the chaos, but they all in all it was a good time. And it mm. wasn't until they started digging into the story and really seeing you know, how some other people had the worst experience of their life. You start to understand you know, how that can get lost over time. And I think that's what I want to do with people with this film. I want to, I want to bring people in with nostalgia, you know, be entertained, be engrossed by the story, but at the same time, kind of self-reflect and reckon with maybe how you behaved in the late nineties uh, or your friends and, you know, and how, you know, if you see some parallels to where we are now and draw some lines to how we got from there to where we are now. So these are kind of the goals with this film. I don't want to say, this is what you should be feeling or thinking. I just want you to kind of infer that as you watch this film. I think that's a, a good goal for you there. And you did ask Michael Lang a question that I was going to ask you at the very end of the film. You asked him if there would be another Woodstock. And sure enough, he tried to get another Woodstock going. And I think it fell through because of financing or something like that. So I'll now ask you that same question. Do you think there will ever be another Woodstock again? Or are we better off without that festival trying to uh, bring itself back from the dead? I'm a strong believer in generations shouldn't be pushing their things onto younger generations, you know? <laughs> so truthfully, it's up to every generation to find their own thing, I think, you know? And, you know, it's, I'm a firm believer. People are nostalgic for the gener the decade they were born into. You know, the kids of the Woodstock 99 were late 70s, early 80s. I was in the days and confused, you know? I didn't care about the late 60s at all. So, to answer your question, I think I think it's up to a generation to find their own thing. We don't need other people telling us what we should have and have not, you know. Last question, Garrett. How long yeah. did cleanup take once they finally cleared all those kids out? 
Oh man, it's, it's a good question. For me, the story always ended that next morning. I've talked to some kids that were local to Rome. They got hired to go out there, like Boy Scouts, stuff like that, mm. to go and clean up the airfield. And it's a beautiful place now. He is Garrett Price, an outstanding filmmaker who has just come up with another good one. It's called Woodstock 99. It is available now on HBO Max. Garrett, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this wonderful piece of work. Thanks, Ray. It's so nice to see you, man, catching up again. Join me next time when I speak with Houston Chronicle and San Antonio Express news columnist Chris Tomlinson on Forget the Alamo, the rise and fall of an American myth. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. And thanks to you for hanging out today. You can listen, learn, and follow for free at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day. Good day.